as a disciple? Our Lord answers this question in our passage for today's message. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 23, we'll read through the 12th verse of chapter 5. You may also find the passage printed in your order of worship. Before we read the word, let us pray and ask God's blessing. Oh Lord God, we come before you knowing that a mere reading of your word without faith that God the Holy Spirit will come and impart that word not merely to our ears but the ears of our hearts will be unveiled. So we pray, Father, that you would be so pleased to work using your word to bring it to our hearts, to give us understanding, to conform us to Jesus even more. We commit ourselves to you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now God's word for God's people, Matthew 4, 23 through chapter 5 and verse 12. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. And our hope this morning is in God reviving our souls with his powerful, eternal word. You may be seated. The passage we have just read is called the Beatitudes. It's the first part of the fuller passage, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which spans... Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. In this sermon, Jesus described his disciples, who they were meant to be. And then further in the sermon proper, after the Beatitudes, in the remainder of the sermon, 
he describes how his disciples, who are like that, the Beatitudes, are to live in culture. Jesus spoke to those original hearers, and he said in the Beatitudes, this is who you are meant to be. Jesus gave the Beatitudes for those who would come after the first hearers, and he would say to them, in the generations that would follow, this is who you are meant to be as my disciples. And for us today, Jesus tells us who we are meant to be as his disciples. Just as significant today as the day was first spoken on that hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Today we begin a new sermon series on Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. It's a series looking at a portrait of Christ's disciples. Well, what is the purpose of this series? In, 19, in the 1960 NFL championship, that game pitted the Green Bay Packers, coached by the legendary Vince Lombardi, against the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm sorry, Derek is not with us today as he's an Eagles fan. The Packers were ahead 13 to 10 going into the fourth quarter, but late in the game, the Eagles scored a touchdown. And at the last minute, they won that championship. It was devastating for the Green Bay Packers, but it also represented a turnaround for the Packers. In the next seven seasons, the Packers won five NFL championships and two Super Bowls. A football dynasty was born under Lombardi. And we may ask the question, what made the difference from 1960 to 1961? In the following season, the 1961 season, during the first meeting for training camp, Coach Lombardi walked into the room where the 38 Green Bay Packers were gathered. And he stood before them and he lifted up an object. And this is what he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Lombardi had a plan and his plan was to go back to the basics. His plan was to go back to the fundamentals of the game. One of Lombardi's biographers said this, and I quote, he began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, this series that we're currently in beginning today and the series that I will start the first of next year are about going back to the fundamentals. For our current series, it is about going back to the fundamentals of who, who Christ's disciples are meant to be. And then we'll finish out the year with this series, though there'll be plenty of breaks in between. 
But we'll begin next year with a new series that will consider the fundamentals of salvation. How do I become a disciple of Jesus Christ? What are those basic essential truths concerning the salvation of sinners? And so going back to the basics will be our task for the next two sermon series. But for over the, the next 12 messages, we'll be looking at the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12, each Sunday looking at one Beatitude, looking at who am I meant to be as Christ's disciple, those, those eight characteristics as I count them, people count them differently. But we'll also consider what comes right after the Beatitudes, the fact that Christ's disciples are meant to impact culture, salt and light, verses 13 through 16. But Christ's disciples also have a different type and quality of righteousness than the Pharisees, verses 17 through 20. And then we'll conclude the series before Thanksgiving by looking at the cost of discipleship. I think a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus without weighing the cost. And there's a cost to pay for following Jesus. But it's a cost worth paying, and it's a cost that no one can keep us from paying if we've been truly united to Christ in saving faith. So like the Packers in 1961, we need, we need to get back to the fundamentals of living the Christian Life. We don't need a coach like Lombardi standing up and saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. No, we need to be reminded of our Lord on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Many years ago, well over 2,000 years ago, as it were, lifting up a portrait to those first disciples and saying, church, this is my disciple. Firstly, Jesus had authority to define a disciple. His authority, he had authority to define a disciple in the way that he did as given in the Beatitudes and really in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. He had authority as an artist would have authority to paint the portrait he willed to paint. And as we look at chapter 4 and verse 23 through the second verse of chapter 5, we find out some things about Jesus. Jesus' fame spread. He was followed by crowds, great crowds, the text tells us. People from all over, even beyond the Jordan River, came to see and hear Jesus. They came to see and hear him because he had power. He had power to do miracles, all kinds of miracles. He was a sensation in his day. Even greater, the text tells us that Jesus had the authority not only to do miracles, great miracles, supernatural things, but he had authority most importantly to forgive Sins. And you know that the scene where Jesus 
was asked to bring healing to this paralytic. And he did that, but he also verbalized forgiving sins and that his power to bring about healing of this paralytic simply pointed to his authority to forgive sins. Drove the Pharisees nuts. <laughs> they were really upset with Jesus saying, I have the authority to give sin because what Jesus was saying was, I am divine. We learn of Jesus' mission that Jesus was not primarily focused on healing the sick, on calling forth the lame to stand up and walk and giving sight to the blind. Jesus came and he did that, but all of that pointed to the essence of his mission, to bring the kingdom, his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the theme of Matthew 1, chapters 1 through 4. The miracle simply pointed to something greater, more profound, truly life-altering. Jesus bringing the kingdom and receiving people, sinners, into that kingdom through his atoning work. His authority to bring the kingdom and to receive people into the kingdom is the backdrop to the Beatitudes, as well as to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. We can't understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding this significant, profound backdrop to it. Jesus bringing the kingdom. He had authority to do so. And the very last part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, speaks to Jesus' authority. He wraps up the sermon. Speaking of authority, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus, the artist, had absolute authority to paint the portrait he chose to paint that depicts who his disciples were and are meant to be. Church. This is my disciple. Secondly, the word picture that Jesus gave, the portrait that he painted, was an exact description and depiction of who his disciples were and are meant to be. He says, this is my disciple church. In verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5, we find the, the eight characteristics of the disciples, the Beatitudes. My disciple is poor. My disciple is one who mourns. My disciple is lowly. My disciple is hungry and thirsty. My disciple is focused on purity of his inward life, his heart. My disciple is a peacemaker. My disciple suffers persecution. In the Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, he views these beatitudes as negatives, deficiencies. And Willard's point wrongly so. I disagree profoundly with Willard. 
But his point is to say, in spite of you being poor in spirit, God blesses you. That's wrong. That misses the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying that the essence of being my disciple, the, the fundamental character of being my disciple, are these eight characteristics. Jesus said, my disciple is one who is poor in spirit, but will possess the riches of heaven. My disciple is one who mourns over sin, but yet will be eternally comforted in my grace. My disciple is one who is lowly, meek, but at the same time is a beloved child of the King Eternal and has an inheritance that will never fade. My disciple is hungry and thirsty all the time, but Christ brings satisfaction. My disciple is merciful because of the great mercy my disciple has received. My disciple is focused on the heart issues of life and has hope of seeing God face to face. My disciple is not a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker because of being a son and not a slave. My disciple is persecuted. Persecuted by the world. Persecuted by institutions. Persecuted by people. Reviled. But will find reward as a citizen of heaven. My disciple is impactful and will season and illuminate culture. My disciple has a radically different type and character of righteousness than the religious elite of his day. My disciple pays a price following me. Willard was profoundly wrong. These are not undesirable qualities. What we've just read is Jesus saying, this is the essence of being my disciple. Beatitudes are to be understood in light of just six general principles. First, the Beatitudes summarize the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of them as the cliff note version of the sermon. If you read the Beatitudes and understand them, you pretty well got what Jesus is teaching he just, he just unfolds the Beatitudes throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's another way to look at it. Secondly, the, the Beatitudes are characteristics every Christian possesses. And every Christian possesses all of them. Now, not perfectly and not all at the same proportion. But the Beatitudes are not like spiritual gifts. You have this spiritual gift, and you have another spiritual gift. Every Christian is meant to possess all of them, to reflect all of them in his or her life. Thirdly, the Beatitudes are by grace. Jesus is not talking about natural ability here. He is not talking about a Myers-Briggs 
personality characteristic here. He's not talking about temperament. He is talking about what we receive when we're united to Christ in saving faith by grace. These are gifts that are given to us as we are united to Christ. And these qualities belong to the realm of the kingdom of God. We can't read the Beatitudes. We can't study the Sermon on the Mount divorced from the kingdom. These are kingdom qualities. These are kingdom characteristics. They, they reveal the values of the kingdom. So if you take your bulletin and if you turn to the inside front cover, you will see that covenant has values. Did you know that? Covenant is biblical by affirming the Bible as the authoritative word of God. That's a value. Covenant is connectional by affiliating with the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. That's a value. Confessional by adhering to the Westminster Standards. Missional by seeking to spread the gospel worldwide. Relational by encouraging families to build community. We have values as a church. Organizations should have values. It's helpful to keep the organization moving, united together to accomplish the mission and purpose. Well, these are values that are possessed by those who are in the kingdom. Values of the kingdom. And because of that, the Beatitudes distinguish the kingdom people, Christ's kingdom people, believers from the unbelieving world. Think of what our world, just worldly people, unbelieving people, value today. They value all sorts of things. Power, money, physical beauty, reputation, position, material things. But Christ's kingdom People in Christ's kingdom, you and me, our value system is much different. Our value system must be at the least the Beatitudes. These are values of the kingdom. They distinguish us from the rest of the world. J.C. read Psalm 1. That's a passage of scripture that distinguishes God's people from the rest of the world. And so does the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, the Beatitudes. And the sixth general principle, as we're looking at the Beatitudes as a whole, is the Beatitudes are the way of true blessedness and happiness. Now, when we start talking about happy Christians, some people go, wait a minute, we shouldn't, we shouldn't desire to be happy. Well, Jonathan Edwards, the great philosopher, theologian of our country back in Puritan New England, he, he wrote a treatise on Christian happiness. It is okay to desire happiness. It's part of how God created us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, if you really want to be happy, here's the way. And he was referring to the way of the Beatitudes. But of course, Lloyd-Jones and each one of us should not understand happiness as this temporary 
feeling that we get when a worldly thing, be it good or bad, gives us a sense of happiness. No, happiness in this case, happiness in light of the Beatitudes, happiness for the Christian is a state of well-being in relation to God. That's how Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it. Blessedness here is not subjective, what makes me happy, but it's objective. Think of blessedness as a declaration of what God thinks of us. Blessed are you because by my grace you're poor in spirit. That's a declaration of what God thinks of you and what God thinks of me, what God thinks of his disciples. You see, the emphasis of blessedness here, of true happiness, is not on human feelings, but on divine approval. Some theologians, some scholars, commentators actually speak in terms of the Beatitudes being congratulatory. Congratulations, disciple. God approves of you because you mourn over your sin. Have you ever thought of that? Being approved by God as you hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the truest way of understanding happiness. John Piper says the bottom line of happiness is that we, we are granted to see the infinite beauty of God and make much of him forever. C. Samuel Storms views happiness as the state of being marked by the fullness of God in Christ. He sees it as satisfaction coming from God. And he sees it as possessing the favor of God. And I like that. Happiness, true happiness, is that state of joy and blessedness because God has been gracious to us and has granted us favor. To be truly happy, the world tells us, Pursue those things that make you feel happy. Money, power, passions, you name it. But Jesus says, no, my disciple looks much different than the world. My disciple understands blessedness and happiness, not in the way the world understands it. My disciples hear God approve when we're poor, when we understand and when we are in the state of poverty of spirit, of mourning over sin, of lowliness, of hungering and thirsting for true righteousness, which is in Christ, in being merciful because we've been shown such great mercy from God, in not looking at life just external conformity, but yet seeking to please God inwardly my motives and my thoughts to be, my heart to be pleasing to God. Just a little sidebar comment here. It is so easy 
for us to fake being a disciple of Christ. It is so easy for us to fake being a mature Christian, to being on fire for the Lord. It's so easy because we can, we can project an air of godliness with being void of godliness in the heart. But Jesus said, that's not my disciple. <laughs> my disciple is one who is utterly devastated by the sin that remains in his or her heart. And yet, sees hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work as applied by the Holy Spirit, bringing healing to the heart. A true disciple of Jesus Christ, living up to this portrait, doesn't fake, but we're honest about our heart. We're peacemakers and we suffer persecution. The citizens of Christ's kingdom could not be more different than the citizens of the world. And because of that clear distinction between church, this is my disciple, versus what a worldly person looks like, we need to get back to the fundamentals. And the reason we need to get back to the fundamentals is because the world will not have us getting serious about being Christ's disciple as he has defined. The world is constantly pressing in on us that we would turn from the Beatitudes and conform to the world's standard. The world and Satan and all of the evil powers arrayed against the kingdom of God would have you and me say, well, my identity is this. My identity is that. My identity, and really what we're saying is, there's an identity that is greater, more significant than my identity in Christ. That's what the problem is. And let me tell you, we live in a culture today, we live in a world today, we, we live in an age today where people are identified in so many ways, I get lost in trying to make sense out of it. And even Christians identify themselves in so many ways as if we've forgotten our fundamental identity is in Christ and is reflected in the Beatitudes. Jesus had authority as the artist. He painted a portrait of what his disciples looked like, who they were meant to be. And Jesus on that mountainside, so many years ago, as it were, lifted up his portrait represented by the Beatitudes and he said, church, this is my disciple. In conclusion, I recently listened to a podcast about our country's struggle 
over race. And in particular, race issues as it impacts the church. And the speaker, who was really good, used many terms, identified people in various ways in this podcast, but two significantly. He spoke of black evangelicals, and by the way, the speaker was black, black evangelicals, black Christians, and white evangelicals, white Christians. Now, I would say to you that in such a podcast and such a discussion about race and you know, certain identifiers like black Christian, white Christian, it's helpful to promote the, the discussion. So I'm, I'm not speaking against identifying people as blank Christian. But the problem that I see is that the blank can so easily sideline the Christian. In other words, identifying people as black, white, this, that, Christian, the this, that, the black, white can take on greater importance than the Christian. We lose sight of that. It's so easy for us to turn and to, in a sense, sideline our fundamental identity in Christ because we see an identity, whatever it may be, greater than or more important than who we are in Christ, or we forget who we are in Christ. And so in this fallen world, our identity in Christ is going to be assaulted. It's going to be assaulted by culture, it's going to be assaulted by politics, it's going to be assaulted even by those of us in the church. But I would suggest that the more every true believer, irrespective of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic standing, and any other of the ways we identify various human beings and ways we identify different Christians, the more we embrace and live in light of our true identity in Christ as Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes, I believe the less division that we will have in the church the more unity we will have in the church, the greater acceptance of people from every stripe, brand, ethnicity, race, whatever it may be, we will experience in the church. And I'm talking about the true church of Jesus Christ. And the greater the church will not only season culture, but enlighten culture, shine on culture as Christ's kingdom people. And that's really my passion, my heart for this series, is that we would be reminded of our fundamental identity as being Christ's disciple as understood in terms of the Beatitudes. Especially in our day and time with all of the messages we hear and all of the strife. I think it's easy to lose sight. Church, this is my disciple. And we need to be reminded of that. To go back to the fundamentals. Some years ago, the Rockwell exhibition came uh, to Crystal Bridges. And I know many of you, as well as Renee and myself, had the privilege of going up and seeing the Rockwell exhibition. And, and one of the 
paintings really caught my eye, and I, I did a little, little bit of research on it when I, when I got home. It was Rockwell's Triple Self Portrait. Do you remember seeing that? Uh, it was the, the, the cover illustration on the Sunday or Saturday evening post, February 13, 1960, in case you saw it and remember it. But Rockwell is set before it, paint, it uh, paints this triple portrait. He is sitting in front of a mirror looking at his reflection while he is painting this portrait. So Rockwell painted himself sitting at a mirror, mirror looking at his reflection while painting his portrait. Did you get that? Uh, it was really clever and very intriguing painting. But Rockwell was both the subject twice over and the artist. <laughs> he painted himself at work in his studio. It depicts who Rockwell was and what he did. And he had authority and license to paint this self-portrait. Well, this is a way to illustrate how we should approach the study of the Beatitudes and really the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. It is Jesus the artist, so to speak, depicting what his disciples look like. They are to look like Jesus. And he also depicts how they are to live as members of his kingdom. They are to live consistent with Jesus' life. The, the portrait that is painted here in Beatitudes could be viewed as a, as a reflection of Jesus himself. Each of those beatitudes, Jesus possesses in full, absolutely. We only possess them imperfectly and in varying proportions. But he is the perfect disciple. He fulfills the beatitudes perfectly. The portrait he gives in some respects, could be viewed as a self-portrait of the artist himself. And as we think about that, there is no greater reason to give our full attention to this portrait of the disciple because it is a reflection of our Master and Lord who says, Church, This is my disciple. Let us pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge our need for you to continually work in our lives. We acknowledge our need for you to remind us of the ways that we think of ourselves and our identity and so many things that are fleeting and temporal. But Father, you've given us a beautiful picture of what your disciple looks like. And I pray, Father, that as we set out as a church on this, this journey of studying the Beatitudes, that you would be pleased to work mightily in our hearts and in our lives, that we would be reminded and that we would embrace the fundamentals, the, the essence 
of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Enable us, Lord, to hear Jesus say afresh, Church, this is my disciple. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.